Our scripture text this morning is chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And for you astute observers, you may realize that we appear to be jumping around in 1 Peter. This indeed is true. I preached in 1 Peter 5 a few weeks ago. Jamie finished chapter 4 last week. I'm going to be doing uh, two more sermons in chapter 4. There's a reason for that. It had to do with uncertainty in my own schedule, so bear with us. Thank you. Our verses today are 1 Peter 4, and I'll read 7 through 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. When you are learning to drive a car, the first thing that's driven into your thinking, the cardinal rule of driving, is this. Above all, Keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the road. When Peter is instructing Christians how to live in community, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Whatever you do, above all, keep your eyes on on others to promote their welfare. That's what love is. It is bringing your best to bear in the life of another for their best. This is actually not the first time in his epistle Peter has enjoined his readers to love. You have a breathtaking admonition at the end of chapter 1. I'll read for you. Beginning at 1 Peter 1.22, Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So here we are, Peter saying, above all, love one another earnestly. He must sense that this is a pretty challenging thing for followers of Jesus to do. Twice in his short epistle, he enjoins us to love earnestly one another. So let's just ask three questions of this command in verse 8, above all, keep Loving one another earnestly. Three questions. When, why, and how. Number one, when. Look at the context. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers. Above all, love one another. The end of all things refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That signals the end of earth history the judgment of the world, and the time when those who know Jesus will be physically welcomed into his presence to start an eternal feast of love 
We will love Jesus without sin. We will see the way his Father loves him. We will see with our eyes the way Jesus loves his Father. We will behold physically in the presence of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their love will be brought into the love of God physically forever. In light of that, Peter says, you all ought to be perfecting love among yourselves. Now, the end of all things, the second coming. That might mean on earth things get difficult for followers of Jesus. Hardship, persecution. So in light of the end of all things, that things might get difficult for those in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us to love each other. Why? Because when things are difficult, the temptation is to focus on self-preservation, survival. I don't want to sacrifice for others. I've got to stay what's in it for me. In fact, when Jesus was teaching about his second coming in Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In light of heated up difficult circumstances, there's a temptation for our love for each other to grow cold. Peter says, love one another earnestly. He may be recalling those very words he heard from Jesus' mouth in the upper room the night Jesus was betrayed when Jesus said, recorded in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see here what the heart of God is. Love, what the heart of Jesus is. Love, we experience that love, and so we can't help but love each other. Second question. Peter tells us to love one another earnestly, above all. Why? He actually gives an explicit incentive. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, you may wonder, where does Peter get this insight? Love covers a multitude of sins. It may be that he'd read his chapter of Proverbs that morning. Those of you that know me well, I suggest that believers read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds with the day of the month. This morning, Proverbs 7. Maybe Peter read in Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or several days later, Proverbs 19, 11, I think these go together. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook a transgression. So you offend me. There's a part of my heart that wants to get angry. What angry anger does as a rule is it stirs up more strife. So Proverbs says the response should be love. Love has a power to cover offenses. If I'm walking in wisdom and discretion, I'm slow to anger. There's a transgression against me. I have the grace to overlook it. The scripture says that the biggest impediment to the working of our relationships is nothing less than 
sinned. We hurt each other. We disagree with each other. We irritate each other. We all do things that provoke other people to dislike us. That's life. <laughs> and so you can get reasons to think, I don't have to love that person anymore. They don't deserve my love. So Proverbs 10:12 says, hatred stirs up strife, love covers all offenses. The cover there is the opposite of stirring up. The, the cover means you don't harp on it. You don't seek to reveal it. This verb uh, in, in Proverbs 19.11, overlook transgressions. The idea is it pictures going by something, moving beyond it. The Bible doesn't ask us to turn a blind eye to sin. You can't help but notice that. We can't ignore it. That's impossible. God doesn't ask you to pretend that sin isn't real, but he calls us to forgive. That seems to be the underlying emphasis here. So the emphasis in both of the Proverbs verses is, when you're sinned against, seek to keep the relationship moving, going. Or in the spirit of Romans 12, 18, be, be, uh, be at peace with all men so far as it depends upon you. In other words, don't let anger stall the relationship. Don't let unforgiveness put you in a rut. Don't let a root of bitterness tie you to the ground. You want the relationship moving. Don't hold a grudge in your hands so tightly that your hands aren't open to receive God's other blessings. So explore with me for a few moments what these verses in Proverbs, which I think Peter is echoing when he says love covers a multitude of sins, Explore with me for a moment what these verses assume. They assume a number of things that are important to point out. First, they assume you will be sinned against. All things being equal, none of us would like to be sinned against. We'd love to interact with everybody else in this world and they be perfect towards us. You actually aren't going to find anybody like that. People are going to hurt you. Believer and unbeliever alike, even those you think shouldn't hurt you. Don't expect anyone to interact with you in this life flawlessly. Second assumption, you're going to respond in one way or another. We don't have to pretend sin doesn't hurt. And the temptation is to be angry and unforgiving, not to get past it. But see, how you respond determines whether or not you're going to live in a self-made prison of resentment or whether you will live in freedom and allow the relationship to get going, to keep moving. Remember this, challenging relationships, difficult circumstances don't create responses in you. They are simply uh, situations that reveal struggles in your own heart. When you don't get what you want from other people, often that's simply a window showing you what you're demanding in relationships. Third assumption, you don't have to get stuck in bitterness. These verses hold out the promise of spiritual beauty. <laughs> the, the verse uh, in Proverbs 19.11 says, it is your glory to overlook a transgression. When somebody sins against you, it's an opportunity to become beautiful in the way that you overlook it. So you have to decide, which beauty do I want? The beauty of being right, the beauty of being judge, or the beauty of being forgiving.
It's your glory to overlook a transgression. Fourth assumption, implicit in these verses is the biblical assertion that God is sovereign over them. And God has his purposes to work in them for you. You can be confident that everything God is doing in your life, God is in control of. He works all things according to his purposes. All things for good. So these conflicts you have in your life are designed by God to drive you to him, to show you things you'd otherwise not see about yourself, and to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything God is doing in your life is to reshape you into the image of Jesus. So when people offend you, when people sin against you, it's at least this, these kinds of things are in play. God uses their sin as mirrors often to show you faults in you you don't see. God is helping you see how much grace you need as you are flawed in God's eyes. When you're sinned against, it's a reminder of how much mercy and comfort God has lavished upon you. It's an opportunity for you to experience God's redemptive love all over again. And it's an opportunity for you to show someone what that love looks like in action. You may end up loving someone in a way they'd never been loved before. <gasps> this person was so kind, so forgiving, so understanding, so gentle with my frailty. I guess I'm seeing what Jesus is like. Fifth assumption. If God has his purposes to work in your life when other people sin against you, then he also must have the prescription to remedy the injury. God has the prescription, which means resist enlisting your own homespun concoctions to deal with these. Like treating the pain but not the injury. Like retreating, throw up walls of self-protection, saying, I'm not going to get into close relationships anymore. I'm going to play it safe. I, I, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm not going to let anybody into my heart. Those are home-spun concoctions. And let me say this before I move on. These texts are not a call for you to stay in an abusive relationship. If you are being abused, you're not called to enable evil to be perpetuated against you. That's not good for you or the other person. And this is not a call to hide sin when sin needs to be brought to light. If someone is discovered in a trespass, it needs to be dealt with. This is not an invitation for a seedy cover-up. Not that at all. We're dealing with offenses and personal relationships where you're tempted to get bitter and God has a better way. So, how do you overlook, how do you pass by others' transgressions? The verses in Proverbs don't tell you, but Peter has already shown you in his epistle. What you need in your heart is the reality of the great transgression eliminator, the cross of Jesus. So in every one of his chapters thus far in his epistle, Peter has alluded to the grace, the salvation, the power of God's love in Christ for his readers. It's already alluded to, the power of the cross. 118, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Drawing this reader's attention to this, the price of their eternal cleansing, the blood of Jesus. Chapter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. That blood shed at the cross where he took our sins from us. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for you. The judgment do your sins. He took it. Chapter 4 begins. Christ suffered in the flesh. He took this, the judgment your sins deserve. That's an aspect of his suffering. So Peter's already prepared the way to give us the answer to the only way to overlook transgressions, and that is to have the cross of Jesus deep, deep, deep in our hearts. If I'm looking at somebody's offense against me, the only way to process this in a healthy manner, the only way to get the grace to move past it is to put the cross between them and me. This is how I'm going to interpret it, between them and me. In the language of Paul in Colossians 3.13, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. So if you're trying to forgive people in your life and you're finding it impossible, you're missing the essential ingredient. It's bring the cross into your heart. Put the cross between you and them. Now you're going to see clearly. Now you're going to have the power. Now you're going to have the grace. Now you have the presence of Jesus brought into that difficult situation. See, there is an amazing power experienced by those who stay long at Jesus' cross. On the one hand, they see the horrible consequences of their own sin putting Jesus there. Jesus being held to the cross by my transgressions. And you see the unspeakable wonder of his love for you. Him saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus lovingly staying there to bear the brunt, the full wrath of God for your sins that he might declare you forever righteous and clean. So the cross, beloved, is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you'll never know the love of Christ if he hadn't overlooked your transgressions and taken them into his body. So love covers a multitude of sins. The love of Christ absorbed the multitude of your sins. Knowing that love, you are then equipped, empowered, graced, not to harp on those people's sins, not to bring them up. You're, in, in, you're empowered, therefore, to bury them instead of putting yourself above that person. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Some of us have little scoreboards in our minds. You sinned against me, another point. You sinned against me, another point. You sinned against me, another point. Peter is saying, unplug the scoreboard. And instead, relate to people through the sacrifice of Jesus on his cross for you. And Jesus said something uncanny happens in the way you begin to see people when you do that. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you take the log out of your own eye, then you can begin to see clearly 
the speck in your brother's eye. So there's a sense in which every occasion of seeing something wrong with another person is an occasion to stop and go, just a second, could I be the bigger sinner here? So look, let's be realistic. People will hurt you. You're going to be sinned against. Significantly sinned against. That means at least this much, among other things. Is it not a cause for pity and patience as you thank God? Let's suppose they're worse than you. As you thank God that the only reason another person isn't as good as you is the grace of God? How many of us would be without as much sin as others but for the grace and mercy of God? And when you're processing somebody else hurting you, is it not a cause for self-examination? The need to put others down, the refusal to move on, to harp on it, to not bury that transgression in the biblical appropriate way, it's an occasion to look into your heart and ask yourself, what is going on in my heart that I'm unwilling to do that? Am I somehow finding my own righteousness, my own right standing, finding myself more esteem by keeping that person in a lower position? By celebrating their failure, am I somehow trying to make myself better? No, you should ask that person, bring that person to that mind that, that you have a difficult time with. Bring that person into your mind right now, that person that's offended you, and ask yourself these questions. Will you give them the benefit of the doubt? Work hard to give them the benefit of the doubt. Will you pray for them as if you were praying for yourself? Can you see them as someone broken, frail, themselves sinned against, ruined by the fall as much as you? And will you pay the price, absorb the price of their transgression against you with all the grace Christ has poured into your heart? There's no other way to absorb the price. When you're sinned against, somebody's got to pay the price. To forgive is to say, I'll absorb the cost and the power of Jesus' love for you as it creates a grace and a mercy, a patience, a compassion that is able to absorb that. Remembering that Christ's love for you covered a multitude of your sins. So it's on the strength of that that Paul would write in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Third question, above all, keep loving one another earnestly for love covers a multitude of sins. Third question, how? Peter goes on and he answers that question in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. A love is genius. He both tells you what to do, gives you an appropriate action, and he gives you the right attitude with which to do it. What's the attitude? without grumbling, show hospitality without grumbling. Where do you think he gets this qualifier? Well, he'd been in different people's homes with Jesus. He'd seen hospitality extended by 
ruined, broken, guilty sinners who are experiencing the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and through Jesus' big parties with joy and laughter and feasting. And he'd been invited to dinner with people who were self-righteous, proud, and disdainful of the fact that Jesus made friends with sinners. Peter had seen Jesus detect different kinds of heart hospitalities in people. Interesting, you'll wonder if this without grumbling, Peter had read in Proverbs 23 that morning, verse 6. Don't eat the bread of a man who's stingy. Don't desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. So he's invited for dinner, you're, you're there for a meal, but what you can't see is what's going on in his heart. Eat and drink, he says to you, maybe with a smile. But his heart is not with you. So it's possible to offer tangible hospitality with a rotten attitude, without the heart, with grumbling. You hear grumbling and you recall Israel's trials in the wilderness. Grumbling, Paul calls attention to this in 1 Corinthians 10. Don't grumble as the Israelites did when they complained against God. Look, showing hospitality is an opportunity to grumble because it costs you your space, your time, your money, your attention, your energy. There's a sacrifice made when you show hospitality. So Peter's saying, check your heart. What's the antidote to grumbling in your heart? It's having your heart filled with this conviction. What God has shared with me, it's my pleasure to share with you. The person who believes everything they have, not least the very breath which with their breathing on the occasion of showing hospitality, the very eyes to see the guest, the ears to hear the guest's voice, and everything about their environments, it is all a gift of God. It all belongs to God. It's my pleasure to share with you what God has shared with me. That's the heart attitude that's powerful to overcome grumbling. What's the action, Peter says? Love is expressed by hospitality. Interestingly, the writer of Hebrews seems to conjoin the, the very closely, and Hebrews 13 begins this way. Let brotherly love continue. Don't let it burn out. Don't let it grow cold. Do everything to resist. Above all, love one another earnestly. He writes, let brotherly love continue. Next thing, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Some have thereby entertained angels unawares, probably anticipating situations where itinerant Christian preachers were traveling through towns and they showed up unannounced. I'm a Christian, I need lodging and uh, food, will you help me? They, but they're a stranger, do I do this? So that seems to be what he's alluding to there. Paul alluded to the same in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In fact, hospitality is so near and dear to the heart of God that he wants it demonstrated in the lives of the leaders of the church. It is one of the qualifications for the office of elder delineated by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul writes, therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, must be hospitable, and able to teach. In the heart of the elder is this conviction. What's mine is yours, because what's mine is God's, and I'm God's. Therefore, it's my privilege, it's my pleasure to share this with you. So think of love as a verb. It's what you do for others, expecting nothing in return. Why expecting nothing in return? Because you can never return to God. You can never repay God for all the mercy lavished upon you in his gospel. You can't repay God. And so isn't that experience of the love of Jesus for you that you then, at, that then you are asking the question love asks, how can I bring my best to your needs for your best? Always ask questions. What do you need at this moment that elevates you, that promotes your welfare, that meets your needs, that makes you more like Jesus? What do I have that I can share, hospitality, sharing, that brings betterment to your life. Sometimes it's being hospitable with your ears, just listening, with your hands, helping, with your wisdom, sharing knowledge, challenging that person, just with your heart, being hospitable with encouraging them, being hospitable with your prayers, praying for them, being hospitable with your welcome, whatever that looks like. And beloved, we're doing this ever mindful that the hospitality we show is but a reflection of God's eternal hospitality awaiting us and concretely demonstrated when Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. You'll find rest. It is in Jesus' invitation to come and experience his love that we know the ultimate hospitality of God, the love of Christ. He welcomes sinners to himself. All of our failures to show hospitality, all of our failures to love and follow God, all of our failures to thank and praise him, Christ has done for you. He's freed you to struggle to be good at hospitality because you've experienced the ultimate welcome of God. You're welcome to God through Jesus. That melts the heart into generosity. And we anticipate that great day when we are basking in his love, <laughs> overwhelmed by being loved by him and seeing the, the Godhead love each other. And what sort of hospitality will start that eternal day? Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to serve us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's going to serve us. How can we not serve each other with the same kind of hospitality with the love he's given and promised to us? That's fine dining at its best. Let's import that into our lives for one another. Let's pray. Oh, hospitable God, you who invite the filthy to cleanse them, the wretched to save them, the wayward to find them, the sinners to make them righteous. Oh, 
the hospitality of the gospel. Glorious. You've made us rich. How can we but share some of these riches in word, deed, prayer, resources with others? Melt our hearts under the welcome, loving hospitality of Jesus that we might reflect in this world what it looks like that Jesus has loved us most earnestly, covering the multitude of our sins in his flesh on the cross to set us free for an eternal love feast with him and each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.